but you get used to a particular way of living, a particular income level or whatever. I was not going to quit my job to get six figures. I was going to quit my job because I believed I could make over a million dollars. I don't want to have a six-figure consulting coaching business. Who fucking cares about that? Not me. I wanted to do it so I could make a million plus, two million plus. That felt worth it to me. That's what I was striving for. So if I leave after two, three VP of sales jobs and I'm an advisor, I don't know, maybe I charge four or five grand a month. I leave after six, I charge 15 to 20 grand a month. Same amount of time, arguably less time invested because you're more familiar with certain things and it takes you less time to accomplish stuff. Welcome to the Rising Leader Podcast, bringing forth the new wave of rising leadership and helping leaders find purpose, connection, and results. This is your host, founder of Alluviance, Alex Kremer. Welcome back to the Rising Leader Podcast. And if this is your first time joining us, welcome to the show. This is your host, Alex Kremer. I am joined by a legend within the sales and leadership world, Mr. Scott Lee. So first off, what's up, Scott? Good to see you, man. What's going on, man? That's quite an intro. (laughs) We got to live up to it now. No pressure, no pressure here. Well, let me give a little bit of an intro on you, Scott, just to kind of set the scene here of who you are. I'm assuming that if people are hopping in on here, they know a little bit about you. But Scott, you are a six-time sales leader, a four-time founder, three-time author. You are a sales consultant. You are an advisor. You are a solopreneur. You are a community builder. You are also the host of the Surf and Sales podcast Also, on my personal journey, you are someone who's done the path that many are venturing on going on, and also you've done it very, very well. So I'm very excited just to learn about you and what you've been doing, man. Yeah, thanks for that. I appreciate it, man. So I've been thinking about what to be talking about with you, and we've talked once or twice before. Obviously, I've followed you on LinkedIn, and you're posting some great stuff there. You live in the beautiful Austin, Texas area, which I was just in last week for a couple of weeks, highly considering moving to Austin. By the way, I think you sold it. You sold it to me well in our very first conversation. But I want to just go back here a little bit. I mean, you've got a great pedigree of different things that you're doing. You've impacted many different organizations and many different leaders and sales professionals. I want to actually go back to sales and also how you even got into sales. You know, I believe that You started in college is when a friend of yours who you're playing tennis with got you in. Take me back to that journey. Many of the listeners here are individual contributors right now or aspiring sales leaders or early on in their sales leadership career. So we'd love just for you to share, like, how did you get from where you are now from where you were back in the day? Well, you know, I think it's important to let everybody know that I actually didn't get started in sales until I was 27 years old. So anybody who's listening who's 27 years or younger, who's in sales or sales leadership or an entrepreneur already or whatever, you have a huge head start on me. So I want you to just sit with that and give yourself a little pat on the back for that. When I was going through through school, I was playing two sports. I played tennis and soccer in college for four years. I was studying religion, studying psychology, didn't do anything in business whatsoever, wasn't doing any sales, literally had no idea how I was ever going to make money. I was 
supposed to get a degree and wanted to keep playing sports, really. I go to grad school because I don't really want to work and I want to seem productive still. So I'm like, oh, let's go to grad school. So I finished my first year of grad school. I come home, visit my family, and I start getting super sick. And this is not like a normal sickness. It spirals really bad. I go from like 195 pounds, six foot two to 140 pounds in like six, seven weeks. Lost all this weight, had started having autoimmune, turns out I have autoimmune disease, had all these digestive and GI problems. I spent four years in the hospital fighting for my life, hooked up to every machine you could think of, organs failing and had nine surgeries, four major abdominal surgeries, two emergency life-saving surgeries, got hooked on opioids in the process. I finally start to heal, get clean, 27 years old. I just got married at the time and had never really had a job in my life that didn't involve getting paid to play sports or coach youth sports. And I was talking to one of my buddies, his name's Tony Marshall. He's a enterprise sales guy. He's been in software forever. And he's like, man, you should try sales. You know, he had been in sales for three or four years, five years at this point. He's like, you're the most competitive guy I know. You're stubborn as all hell. You like to win conversations and arguments and whatnot. You're convincing. You're a captain of the team. Like, if you could figure out sales, I could see you being a sales leader one day. The part that most people don't know is I was super, super introverted prior to my illness. But once I got through my illness, I kind of realized this is the hardest thing I'm probably ever going to go through in my life. So there's no fucking sense in holding back anymore. And whoever I was on the athletic field just sort of came out all the time now. I decided to give it a shot. Turns out I was pretty good at it and rose up the ranks as an individual contributor really quickly. Was only an AE for like seven, eight months. Then got bumped up to a sales manager role. My team started dominating and broke all the records and all this kind of stuff. Then I was a senior sales manager. Before you knew it, I was running... 70 people across two offices. And I had like a year and a half of total business experience. So that kind of was the beginning of my career in sales. Mm. So you were only an account executive or a sales rep for six or seven months, and then you got moved up into being a sales leader. Why did you end up making the move so quickly? Was this something that you were aspiring towards yourself? Or was it something that people said, hey, Scott, you're great at what you do. We need you to be teaching and leading other people. What was the impetus that, that drove that? No, it was more me. I realized very quickly that the sales managers around me were more or less worthless. They weren't coaching. They weren't training. They just cared about people slamming deals and their own paycheck. And I'm like, this can't be the way that it's supposed to be. So I think I had been a rep for like three or four months, was the number one rep in the company. And you know, keep in mind, I have no business experience and like no finesse whatsoever, no mentor, no coach. This is 20-something years ago. So I marched myself into the CEO's office and basically threw the sales managers under the bus. And I was like, they don't really do anything. I figured this out all on my own. I think that I could do a better job than them and help everybody else around me. What do I have to do to get promoted into a leadership role? And the CEO sort of metaphorically slapped me around the room a little bit and gave me a lesson on why my approach was not the right approach. And they were right. But then they did something interesting. They sort of spelled out the particular steps that I needed to do in order to get this role. So I said, 
okay, thank you for the medicine. I'll see you in a couple months after I hit all these things. So I go back and I hit all these things and what happens, but they promote somebody else. Hmm. And I was pissed, so pissed. You know, this is like five, six months into my career journey. I didn't understand at all. I, I was the best rep. I had done what they said to do. And it was right around Christmas and I took two weeks off, totally shut down. And I was debating leaving and going to get another job. Two interesting things happened. The first thing is I got one other interview and it was this company called ADP that a friend of mine, another former college teammate of mine was working there. So I go to this meeting at ADP and I have this interview and the VP of sales literally tells me that I'll never be any good in sales. And he doesn't see it and that he thinks I'm some sort of quiet anomaly that is only good at this one place and it'll never work. That wrecks my confidence to try to go somewhere new. I go back home and I'm like, well, I guess the only thing I can do is do even better than I've been doing and wait for this new person in the role to fail because I really think they're going to fail. And I got to make it impossible for them not to promote me the next time. And so that's what happened. I went in, I broke all the records that I had. The person they had promoted in front of me failed out and then they put me in the role. So at like month eight or nine total in business was when I got my first team and was a sales manager. Mm. And I wanted to do it because I looked around me and didn't think people were doing what they were supposed to do in that role. And I could tell that I was going to get more joy out of helping other people close deals than I was going to get closing deals myself. It's interesting. I was you know, at Microsoft for five years, and then I joined Outreach as an account executive initially. And I was there for a year until I moved into a sales leadership role. And I actually found that my ability as a sales professional incrementally improved once I moved into a sales leadership role. Because no longer was I being required to just do it myself. I was actually being required to teach people how to do it. I was being required to explain why and how I do things a certain type of way. It's just the classic statement of to become a master at something is to teach it. I'm just curious on your journey, when you moved into a leadership role, did you find yourself and your ability as a sales professional incrementally improve because you had to teach people? Yeah, it absolutely did. One of the things it did for me was it, it made me articulate what I was doing that was working. I didn't know how to explain it until I started trying to teach it to other people. But what I did in selling was I sort of mirrored the recovery process, which I was familiar with, with selling. And I realized that nobody cared about my solution or my product or anything until they believed that they had a problem. Same thing you have to do with somebody who's got addiction issues. Got to get them to admit they have a problem first before they take any interest in what you have to say. And then I had to explain to them why they should care about fixing this problem. Well, that only gets somebody to like functioning alcoholic level. I know I have a problem. I know I need to do this for these particular reasons, but I haven't hit rock bottom yet. Well, rock bottom is urgency. It's urgency in your sales call. So I had to get them to feel the urgency to make a change. And I realized that then and only then did somebody give a shit about what I had to say. And what I just explained to you, it took me countless tries before I figured out how to articulate it and came up with the model and ended up writing the book 15 years later or whatever. But I was trying to teach these reps on my team what I was doing. And I was bumbling around with the words and whatnot, but they started to get it. And 
through all these explanations, not only did I get more conviction in what I was doing as a seller, which made me better as a seller, but I simplified things more and more and more. I started teaching other people who were brand new like me and people who had been in sales for quite a while, this methodology and the results started showing up and the rest is history, I guess. (laughs) I totally agree with you that one of the best ways to improve on something is to try to teach it to other people. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think that's a thing that many people don't realize is that when you move into a sales leadership role, you're required to hold yourself to an even higher standard in terms of how you sell, how you frame conversations, how you do discovery, how you demo, whatever it might be, because everybody's looking at you. Everybody's listening and going to be replicating you. Yeah. And a lot of times back in the day, I mean, things are different now, but back in the day, it was like people would try to hand you the phone if you're the sales manager. They needed help or a Hail Mary or whatever. We got a big negotiation call coming up. Scott, you got to be on this thing. Right. And then all of a sudden you're on the phone and a little crowd congregates because some of the other reps come to listen. And now it's like a performative thing. And it's like, fuck me, I better close this deal or I'm a laughing stock. So you got to get good <laughs> as quick as possible. And especially when the lights are shining on you. you know? mm-hmm. So you moved into sales leadership. You had a history of two or three managers who you had also thrown under the bus who weren't performing effectively there. What did you do differently that allowed you to accelerate so quickly? So it sounds like by the age of 28, 29, 30, you were managing, I think you said 70 people, two different offices. Was it just merely the fact that you were a great teacher or were you doing something to build culture, to develop leaders? What was the secret sauce that you were doing there? Well, I don't know if it's a secret sauce or not, but I did spend a lot of time teaching. One of the things I noticed was prior sales managers that I witnessed just weren't spending a lot of time practicing with people. And I was the type of sales manager that would sit with you, Alex, in the office for 30 minutes while you repeated the same two opening lines of the pitch until I felt like you got it right over and over and over and over. So Hmm. I put in time and energy and effort there. The second thing is I really dug into getting to know the people who are on my team and what made them tick, what they cared about, just really showing that I gave a shit about them and their life and their career and whatever their goals were listening to them all the time, talking to them about life, not just sales stuff, spending time with them, lunches and happy hours and things like that. And as far as the culture goes, I think I drove the culture with my competitiveness and my desire to win and do better all the time. I'm the type of person, for better or for worse, I'm the type of person that if I got 100 today, I need 101 tomorrow. If I did 5 million bucks this year, next year, I need to do (laughs) 5.01, right? And I didn't have to have a CEO or a VP pushing me to stretch and do better. I was always driving us and I was a big believer in celebrating that. So I did a lot of things with my team that would probably be frowned upon right now. Renting a party bus and taking people out to clubs and going to games. And I used to host parties at my house for the whole sales team and stuff like that. Things that I probably shouldn't have done, some of them in hindsight. But they really worked as far as creating that culture at the time of this was like an elite group. There was 15, 16 people on this particular sales team, the original like OGs. And everybody else in the company wanted to be on that team. And I had a high standard, a high criteria. I wasn't going to let anybody on my team whatsoever just because they wanted to. 
And then managers started getting promoted from my team. And so that would create spots. And then I'd pull somebody else in. And I remember being sort of proud. Oh, Alex got promoted. Now he's going to be a manager. He's going to try to compete with me. But I also remember thinking, fuck me. Like, I got to start all over with this brand new rep. But those people who were coming in would be hungry. And the other people who'd been on that team would kind of acclimate them and be like, yo, we don't do things that way here. Like, we don't go, you know, on cigarette breaks every 45 minutes. That doesn't happen on Scott's team. Stuff like that. I think those are three of the real drivers in the early, early days of my sales management career. Mm -hmm. It sounds like you had a standard with which everybody on your team held themselves accountable to. You first set that standard and then other people were bought into that standard, that level of accountability. And then when a new person was welcomed into the team, it's just like, hey, this is how we do it. If you're going to be part of this crew here, there's a certain way you go about your days, there's a certain level of execution, there's a certain amount of zest that you need to have if you're going to be yeah. on this team. Yeah, I mean, I had weird rules. I was living in California at the time, but I signed my team up for like the East Coast shift, basically. So we worked 6 a.m. to 3 p.m. every day, but I didn't leave at 3 p.m. This was a season in my life where I was 27, 28 years old. I didn't have any kids. My wife at the time was going to grad school like I had nothing else to live for other than this. So I would be there until six, seven o'clock. Well, inevitably, people on my team just started staying that late <laughs> as well. So we were outworking everybody and setting a standard. I had a rule on my team that I didn't have people on my team who smoked cigarettes. Weird rule, especially maybe in 2004 or 2005. It didn't make sense to some people. There were some top performers that would be on other teams. And I'd be like, yeah, you can have... Alex over there, you know, he smokes Marlboro Reds. I don't want to deal with that. I did the math. I'm like, this person is gone from their desk this many times a day. They work this less hours. If I have somebody who's productive during that period of time, that'll help. And when people smoke, they go to the smokestack outside, what we called it, and they bitch and moan and complain about things. Like, I don't want to deal with that. I had like these weird kangaroo court type rules that worked for me at that particular time. Like you said, in order to be on my team, you had to buy into these things. And they would buy in because I really gave a shit about them and drove them sometimes farther and harder than they wanted to be pushed into having the best performances of their lives and doing better, making more money, getting promoted and whatnot. That's how it started. Do you feel like, I feel like such a common thing that organizations are dealing with today, specifically within sales teams and sales leaders is burnout. Everybody's just like, oh, we're working so hard. We're getting driven so hard just to be hitting our quota. And it's a distraction. And there's truth in it. There's for sure truth in it. But did you ever experience anything like that? Did you ever have to come face to face? I mean, I'm assuming back in 2004, 2005, it wasn't talked about as much. There was a little bit more of, yeah, you grind. That's part of what you do here. Was that common back then at all? If it was common, it wasn't common where I was and where I spent time. I never felt that. I'm sure that it was going on. And I'm sure if I was more mature and had more life experience, maybe I would have been more thoughtful and behaved a little differently. I certainly do and think about these things different now. But I have never really hit burnout. And I understand it's a real thing, but I don't know. I don't really understand it. And here's my only explanation. My explanation is I lost four years of my life 
from age 23 to 27, where I fought like hell every single day just to be here having this conversation with you right now, just to have the opportunity for somebody to hang up on me on a cold call, just to have the opportunity for somebody to fire me because they think I'm no good anymore, just to have the opportunity to struggle to find a job and wonder where I'm going to get my next paycheck. My perspective on life and things is different. I don't mean it to diminish people who experience burnout or anything like that, but my perspective is such that I am very grateful for every opportunity put in front of me. I recognize that everything can be taken from me at any moment. I think we get a limited number of opportunities and at-bats in this life, so I need to make the most out of every single one. And I'm trying to maximize my time here. And I hope to get to a place where I can start to adjust my life in different ways, where I have more time, more freedom and flexibility without sacrificing some of the other things that I want and need and enjoy doing. I haven't really run into that yet. And I'm hopeful that when I do run into it, or if I do run into it, I'll be at a place in my life where I'm able to sort of retire and sort of say, you know what? I think it's a wrap. I think I'm done. Time to go to Costa Rica. Time to disappear. I think I'll know when it's time for me. This episode is brought to you by Alluvians. Alluvians is helping sales professionals and sales leaders master the craft of sales by transforming the inner game. Last year, we threw over four retreats and helped over 150 tech sales professionals, leaders, and founders. And next, we got it going on May 3rd through 5th in the beautiful Austin, Texas area. So make sure you apply to alluvians.co to check it out for more. You strike me as a person, and this is just based on pure intuition here, your gas tank always is full, or at least you have something in it that is keeping you driving forward. Is that true? Obviously, you did a lot of research on you. I think I counted like 24 strategic advisor roles on your LinkedIn. You've authored multiple books. You have multiple companies and communities that you're driving. I mean... Are you playing Tetris with your calendar every single day? And you're just like, that's just how I am. I can just do this. Yeah, I love that phrase, Tetris with my calendar. I've never heard of that before. But as soon as you said it, it like immediately resonated with me. Yeah, I am. I think my motor revs higher and hotter than most people. And like I said, I think I have a different sense of urgency than, than some people. I also think that I'm quite capable I think that I've learned also to trust my gut and make decisions quickly. Do I want to do this? Yes, better do something rather than sit and analyze it and overthink certain things. So I get a lot of stuff done in a short amount of time. I don't do very well with idle hands (laughs) and downtime. I can't sit on the couch all weekend long and watch TV or something like that. I just can't do it. Whether it's creative things that come from within me or people from outside presenting things to me and asking me to be a part of this, that, and the other. I like to keep myself stimulated and engaged and keep myself busy. Like I said, I'm trying to do as much as I can with the time I have here. But the calendar thing is no joke. I don't remember when we first tried to book this, but I would guess that it was at least six to eight weeks out Mm-hmm. From today. I think we had to reschedule one time. <laughs> yeah. Today is what? May 16th. If you try to get in my calendar right now, you're probably looking at like mid-July. And I know a lot of people 
would tell me like, well, you're filling your time with bullshit and busyness and whatnot, but I don't really think so. I think that I am pretty good at prioritizing my time. I enjoy talking to different people. I enjoy being on podcasts or hosting podcasts. I enjoy engaging with communities that I'm a part of. I enjoy advising as many different companies as possible. I don't have a lot of what I would call just sort of worthless catch-up meetings with total strangers. So I think I prioritize the right things, but my calendar is quite busy. So on this show, we talk about a lot of different types of things around meditation, around breath work, exercising, if that's what allows you to reach a state of spaciousness. Do you have anything that you are doing to nourish yourself? Because you are talking to a ton of people and you're very articulate. I mean, you add a ton of value to a lot of different people and organizations. Do you do anything to first lead yourself by nourishing yourself to keep your cup full? I have done a bad job of that in the last couple of years, I think. I think I started off my solopreneur journey doing really well with that, but I've had a lot of injuries in the last couple of years. This is not an excuse, but maybe it is an excuse. I've got a torn rotator cuff right now in my right shoulder. I've got a partially torn right bicep tendon. I've got severe arthritis in my right knee from multiple knee surgeries. I could go on and on and on. Some of these things, I can't do the things that I used to do. I can't surf as much as I used to. I can't play soccer anymore. I can't play tennis anymore. So I lost a lot of outlets that I used to have. I'm 45 years old. My body's broken. I've been through hell. I'm at a stage in my life where I'm starting to try to accept some activities that are less grueling on the body, let's just say. You know, I'm pretty good about going on walks every single day, whether it's with my dogs or just on my own. I'm pretty good about jumping in my pool every afternoon when my last meeting is over, whether it's cold outside or whether it's hot outside, I jump in there and wake up. Is that the signal like, hey, the day is done of calls. What am I doing next? Yeah, day's over, jumping in the pool. I just bought an ice barrel the other day. So I'm like starting to get into that. One of my buddies has one and I was a little bit resistant. That'll change your life, man. But I got in there <laughs> and he was like, we'll see if you can last a couple minutes. I was in there 17 minutes the very first time I ever did it. I'm like, all right, we're going to do this. My older son, who's 15, is all about it. So he's all stoked. So I got that. But I've made adjustments this year a little bit. I don't take very many meetings, if any meetings, on Mondays. And Fridays, I really don't take any. And I started playing pickleball every Friday. So there's things that I do. I don't know that I am the poster child for self-care. But there's things that I'm doing and trying to do that give me some amount of calm and zen and time spent not working and things like that. Yeah. I mean, everybody has their own method. I mean, for me, I meditate in the morning, then I do breath work, and then I journal. And that's what works for me. But I think what you're speaking to right there, everybody has their own modality, I guess you can say, for taking care of themselves. So I want to just go back because we talked about you were at in your career. You were leading these different types of teams. And I think a lot of people, including myself, are at that stage. Hey, I've been a successful sales rep. Hey, I've now been a successful sales leader. I'm really building these companies and these teams, and I'm finding a lot of fulfillment from it. At what point did you say, what's next for me? What am I really trying to do? I mean, you 
became an author, you started your own company, many different things. But what was that like, that key driver that you said, okay, I'm ready to graduate from being a sales leader. You were a VP of sales, I think, at two companies that ended up getting acquired, both of them. When did you say, cool, what's next? What's my next career? Yeah. So I had been a head of sales, VP of sales, whatever you want to call it, three times in the Bay Area. And then I moved to Austin in 2011. So it was my fourth VP of sales job. And I remember there was a moment where we had the opportunity to sell the company to a big media player for a mid-sized nine-figure sum. And I remember being pulled into the room and you know asked my opinion. And I was like, sell this motherfucker. Like, <laughs> I was like, we have peaked. I have sprinted hard for two and a half years. I come from nothing. I come from the poorest county in all of Northern California. My dad's a teacher. My mom was a part-time nurse. This will change my life. Sell this motherfucker. And the answer was no. And the answer was, I think we can be a billion-dollar company. I think we can go more, do bigger, da-da-da-da-da. And I remember just feeling so deflated, man. So deflated. And right then I realized... I'm never going to get rich working for somebody else. The odds of it are so, so small. I can have a good upper middle class lifestyle being a VP of sales. And maybe I can do a few things on my own and get rich, but I'm never going to get like any kind of fuck you money working for somebody else unless just the luckiest of lucky things happen. And I remember in that moment thinking, I don't want to do this anymore. I don't want to work for other people And I don't get to make certain decisions and I disagree with people and they can tell me that I did a bad job and let me go at any moment. They can raise my quota by 500x or whatever. That was the first moment where I was like, I need to start planning my exit. So that was the first moment where I thought, maybe I'll try to write this book. How old were you at the time? Uh, This is 2004, so 35-ish around 35-ish. Yeah. So significantly older again than some of these 22-year-old kids with six months SDR experience who want to be a solopreneur. But I digress. So I was about 35 years old. I'm like, let me write this book. My sales philosophy, the addiction model of selling. So I write this book thinking that I'd sell like 100 copies. And it somehow really resonated with people. I talk a lot about how I didn't come from much and how I'd get passed over for all these different things. And I had a chip on my shoulder all the time. And I think I sort of spoke from the perspective of a past degenerate who was trying to do something different with their life. And that resonates with a lot of salespeople. A lot of salespeople are here because you just kind of fell into it because you're super smart and charismatic, but you couldn't get your shit together to go to law school or whatever the fuck. And so the book kind of took off. And I started to get a little bit of recognition. And I took another VP of sales job and started building my brand. But I was building my brand to help with recruiting. I was trying to recruit in like four or five different states. And I had this huge, diverse sales team from all over the place. And I saw the book takes off. I start building my brand. Then I have this idea for surf and sales. So I launched this surf and sales summit, micro sales and leadership conference in Costa Rica a couple times a year. That sells out. That starts to do really well. And I start creating content. So what you see is somebody who had a moment where they were like, I don't like that I'm not in control of my own destiny. I'm going to start dabbling and planning my exit strategy. I did it that way because I'm not like a throw caution to the wind type person when it comes to finances. 
So rather than just being like, fuck it, I'm going to quit my job today and go all in. I was like, hey, here's my W-2 income as a VP of sales over here on this side. And here's my kind of side hustle income. I got to keep growing this side hustle income shit until I match and then surpass my W-2 stuff. And once I do that, I don't think I need you anymore, Miss W-2, Mr. W-2. And then I could cut the cord. And so that became my plan. Surf and sales kept going. We launched a podcast out of it. That would get sponsorship revenue. I wrote two other books. I launched Thursday Night Sales Community during the beginning of the COVID pandemic. I started investing in real estate. I started doing private coaching. I was picking up sales consulting clients on the side while I was an SVP of sales at Qualia. Qualia in turn became a unicorn and a billion dollar plus company. And I have a lot of equity there. And I'm like, you know what? My income is matched. I got a big equity stake here that could blow up. I'm out. I'm going to go all in. And what's the worst thing that can happen? The worst thing that can happen is I give this a shot for a year and I fail and I have to go be a VP of sales again. Oh, well, I think I can get hired in this particular gig. And so that's what I did. I bide my time a little bit until I had enough income I could count upon before I finally cut the cord. Different strategy than a lot of people. It is. I mean, do you feel like that's the right? I mean, obviously it worked out for you, but for many people, they speak to, well, there's the opportunity cost. How quickly could you really have gotten your own personal company really going if you had, how many hours a week were you investing in your VP of sales role? 50, 60 hours a week, most likely? Yeah, 50 to 60 for sure. For sure. Yeah. Yeah. So you could have been attributing that. The counter argument would be, I would not have the level of expertise in building and scaling sales orgs that I do now if I would have left after three VP of sales gigs instead of six or four instead of six. I would not have had the same brand recognition. I would not have had the same sort of supplementary side hustle activities going on. Here's the difference in a real like dollars and cents kind of framework. I could have quit my job ages ago and made a six-figure income. The bottom line is I don't give a fuck about a six-figure income. That's going to sound annoying and frustrating and offensive to some people who would kill for a six-figure income, but I get it. But you get used to a particular way of living, a particular income level or whatever. I was not going to quit my job to get six figures. I was going to quit my job because I believed I could make over a million dollars. I don't want to have a six-figure consulting coaching business. Who fucking cares about that? Not me. I wanted to do it so I could make a million plus, two million plus. That felt worth it to me. That's what I was striving for. So if I leave after two, three VP of sales jobs and I'm an advisor, I don't know, maybe I charge four or five grand a month. I leave after six, I charge 15 to 20 grand a month. Same amount of time, arguably less time invested because you're more familiar with certain things and it takes you less time to accomplish stuff. So that's the big difference to me. I watch all these people leaving now, cutting the cord, more power to them. But I just think to myself, you're going to do what? 150, 250K? Is that really... Are you going to be able to incrementally go to seven figures plus in a few years all on your own? I don't know, man. I would bet on the people who have done the work for a really long time who start dabbling and side hustling things on the side. And then by the time Alex cuts the cord, he's been a VP of sales three, four times. He's got a couple exits under his belt. Everybody knows who he is. Your ticket price is higher now. 
I bet that that Alex can get to seven figures easier and faster than the other one that quit when they were younger. I could be wrong though. I mean, I think there's a lot of truth in that because what you're speaking to, I mean, correct me if I'm wrong, your niche now is you are typically advising organizations between that zero to 25 million in ARR space, generally. Yeah, that's primarily where I've played. And the reason why you're able to do that and do that effectively and also charge a good amount of money for that is because you've lived and breathed that six times. Yeah, six times as an operator and just kept going back there as a advisor. Like, that's my niche. Yeah. But I also, just to play the devil's advocate, I think there's different things that are important to different people. For example, somebody might say, hey, for me, I'm down to try to make a million dollars eventually, but I'm also cool with making 150, 200K. What's most important to me is spaciousness. I want a nice long morning routine. I don't want any calls until 10 o'clock. I want to be done by three o'clock every single day. And if that's what your vision is, what says, hey, this is allowing me to be my most authentic and true self, that's the path. But you, I think being the never-ending generator, which I resonate as well, I like working. It gets me going. I will never not be able to be doing stuff. That was the path that you were able to take that's made you to what you are now. Yeah, I think everybody can have those different reasons and different paths. I would just also caution you that, I mean, three days a week, I work from 10 a.m. to 3 p.m. on the button. Now, I have no more than 15 minutes breaks periodically, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday from 10 a.m. to 3. But I don't take meetings typically at 8 a.m. or 9 a.m. My kids get home at 4 and I'm an Uber driver for sports and band (laughs) from 4 to 10 p.m. So I'm not working during those hours. Not like I used to. I think that I got to a similar kind of schedule that some of those people who value their spaciousness, as you said, while still earning at a particular level because I did it the way that I did it. But it might not be right for everybody, for sure. Well said. I have two more questions here for you, and this has been exactly what I was hoping this conversation would be, so thank you for that. The first question is this. You're now, I think you say you're 45 now. You've got many different things that you are doing. You've got a long life to still live and to contribute towards this world, knock on wood. What's most important to you now? What, what is the thing that you're like, this is why I'm doing what I'm doing and working so hard? Well, just got done talking about my schedule a little bit, but I think the most important thing for me right now is to make sure that I'm able to spend all of my time with my kids that I'm able to. My older son is a freshman in high school. He's finishing his freshman year. He was in the marching band in high school and he was on the high school soccer team. And I remember when they were little saying, I need to orchestrate my life in such a way that I get to go to every game. Away game, home game, don't care. Games at 3 o'clock, 4 o'clock, 5 o'clock, whatever. Like I want to be there for those things. My younger son, who's in 7th grade, plays soccer, baseball, basketball, track. So I want to go to these things. And so I have the freedom and flexibility now to go do all those things. I also remember a long time ago saying... I don't ever want them to come to me when they graduate high school and they're like, I got into XYZ University. Can I go there? And I have to tell them no, because I can't afford it. You know, yeah, you can get scholarships and all that kind of stuff. But my plan was like, tell me where you want to go, son. Where you're fucking going to go. And I'm very aware of the fact that I only have three years left with my older son until he moves out and call it five years left with my younger son until he moves out. And I'm never going to get that particular time back. So... Nothing means more than optimizing those relationships for the next few years. 
And I don't really care about doubling my revenue this year or the year beyond all that. If I can maintain where I've been at the last couple of years and keep doing some of those things that I want to do and find a little bit of ways to heal my body a little bit, I'll be in good shape. Oh, yeah. I think the ice bath is going to help with that one right there. <laughs> I think so, too. I'm, I'm pretty excited about that. I like it. I like it, man. Well, before I ask my last question, I just want to acknowledge you real quick, man. Thank you for sharing your wisdom. Thank you for showing up. And thank you for the energy you brought here, too. Like, I feel more awake and more alive. And I'm assuming everybody who's listening to this, too, is also feeling as such. And I think you I appreciate that. You know, show a great path of a combination of working hard, but also caring about something that's bigger than yourself and giving back to others in so many different types of ways. Thank you for the path that you're on and the path that you continue to go on. I appreciate that. That's a cool compliment. I don't know that I've ever had somebody tell me that they're energized after conversations with me. (laughs) But I don't know if I can remember anybody telling me that. (laughs) Well, it's there's a transmission that you bring, my friend. So this is my last question. The show is obviously called the Rising Leader Podcast. So my question for you is, what is the Rising Leader? The Rising Leader is somebody who does not look like you and I, straight up. The Rising Leader are people from underrepresented populations and communities that have not had the same opportunities that we've had. Talking about people of color, people of different genders, people of different orientations, those opportunities have not historically presented themselves or been made a priority. And I think some of the problems that we experience in business culture and in society potentially are because of that. And I think part of the way forward is for people like us to sort of step out of the way after we've enabled other people who don't look like us to take on some of those roles. And I think that those people are the leaders of the future. Those are the rising leaders that I want to see uh, and follow. Awesome. Well said right there. Well, Scott, thank you so much, man, for being on the show and for all the listeners. If you like this, make sure you give us a like on Spotify or iTunes and make sure you share this with whoever in this world needs to hear some of this pure gold right here. But uh, Scott, thank you, my friend, and have a good one. Yeah, you too, man. Appreciate it. Thanks for listening to the Rising Leader Podcast. Make sure you hit that follow button so you get notified every time a new episode releases. If you know someone who wants to take their lives and their career to the next level, send them this episode so we can all rise together. For more information, check out alluviance.co. We'll see you next time. And in the meantime, keep letting it flow. This episode is brought to you by Alluviance. Alluviance is helping sales professionals and sales leaders master the craft of sales by transforming the inner game. In the past 12 months, we've thrown over four retreats and impacted over 100 tech sales professionals, leaders, and founders on diving in deep on what really matters, but really mastering the craft and being in an incredible community. Our next Arise Immersion is coming up this May 3rd through 5th in the beautiful Austin, Texas area, and make sure you grab your spot. Check out alluviance.co to apply there. Hope to see you there.